Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. After a half day of very engaging deliberations, welcome to this ministerial interaction titled Healing a Divided World. With us this afternoon, from your left to right, are MUM Ali Sabri, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Sri Lanka, Nalandi Pandor, the Minister of International Relations and Cooperation of South Africa, Tanya Fayon, Deputy for Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign and European Affairs of Slovenia. And moderating this session this afternoon is Shashi Tharoor, Member of Parliament from India. This session, let me tell you, will be held under Chatham House rules. And uh, post-session, we will have lunch. And over to you, Great. Thanks very much. And uh, welcome back from all the exciting things we've been hearing downstairs to an even more exciting conversation upstairs. Great to see you all, and uh, I do want to say that uh, the way we're going to structure this is we'll hear from each of our distinguished panelists very briefly. We'll have uh, a short exchange on the podium, and then turn it over to you as usual. So uh, I've been warning the ministers that you're all uh, famous for asking lots of questions and very tough ones of that. So we budgeted about an hour for the entire discussion, and I look forward to this exchange, and we'll break for lunch around 1.45, so keep your appetites in check to that. Great. Well, I'm delighted to be sitting next to Tanya Fayon, the Foreign Minister and Deputy Prime Minister of Slovenia, to uh, Nalady Pandor, who's been here before, who's the Foreign Minister of South Africa, and to Ali Sabri, who's a relatively new Foreign Minister of Sri Lanka. And um, they've all agreed that in the spirit of the informality that characterizes this, place will be on first name terms, so let me turn to Tanya first and say, Tanya, um, this entire question uh, that's confronting the panel is what kind of leadership can we offer and what does the world need in these turbulent times of polarization? Now, there are various kinds of polarization. I think you'll agree that some would speak about the polarization that's just happened in Europe and across the world because of the Ukraine war and divided opinions on that. Some would speak of polarization within societies and between them because of religious and identity differences. And some might speak of polarization uh, on, on trade issues where there's an increasing divergence between the free traders and the protectionists. And with all of this going on, you, you're really seeing polarizations of various sorts. What do we do uh, in terms of uh, response, leadership, in my view, how do we bring about the kind of unity, the kind of common ground that leadership very often seeks to achieve? So the floor is each of yours. I'll start with you, Tanya. Thank you very much, Shashi. It's uh, my great pleasure and my first time that I'm attending Rezina Dialogue and also this opportunity to discuss with young, prominent, hopefully, politicians one day. I think it's... Um, an opportunity like that, uh, a great one to exchange what we really think and that we listen to each other and also hear each other what we are saying and trying to understand the differences all around the globe, also in the leadership. As you said at the beginning, the world is today very complex. It's very polarized. Um, also, um, I'm coming from a very small country, Slovenia, inside the European Union, close to the Western Balkans with our instabilities, insecurities. But the war in Ukraine, of course, affected us all. That doesn't mean that we are neglecting or forgetting the other parts of the globe. The opposite. 
I think we are today in the situation that we even more than ever before need to understand each other, that we can address these challenges together. Um, I think the leadership, it's pretty much the same when you put myself, ourselves, we are all foreign ministers, in the context of our national countries first to start with it. Because I think we are tackling with the same issues back at home, how to somehow understand what our societies want. We are having challenges um, of the same kind, I would say. The values of today's, um, what people require is to live life in their dignity, to have secure jobs, to have secure lives, health, education, and so on. And these are the leadership that we have to offer. First, of course, um, in our national borders, but the same goes as international leaders. Now, what I strongly believe is that we have to see the full picture. We need a leadership that is um, fully aware what are the current situations and trends, not only domestically, but of course uh, worldwide. Why I'm saying that? Why we need a full picture? That we can together address the topics. For us, um, you know, coming from a small state, it's extremely important that we respect certain rules and values. You have um, systems, you have leaders that don't do that, and you have those that do that. But those that don't do that, this is what is a challenge to today's geopolitical picture that is changing very fast and causing also disorder around the world. So I would say we really need the full picture and the leaders that understand what is happening around the globe. And second, of course, we need um, leadership that respects mutually agreed rules and norms. When I say like a UN Charter, system of values, the world order, everything that today with the wars is really seriously threatened. We should not accept bending agreed international rules. We have today big powers that are competing each other, that are playing very important geostrategic, geoeconomic games, but they should respect international-based rules and order. I think this is the fundamental we have to understand. And we also need a leadership that is humble, that is not an ignorant, that shows solidarity. Why am I saying that? We in Europe are often nowadays criticized that we are just dealing and addressing the war in Ukraine, which is wrong. We have to behave in a humble way, not in an ignorant way. We have to be able to embrace also the global south, to help each other in solidarity, to address all the challenges that we are having together. And this, maybe my final point would be that we need leadership that embraces the future. Because the future is about everything. It's about people, it's about technology. Looking to technology, we have artificial intelligence. With the artificial intelligence today, we can gather and in so important data on water, on food, on energy. So we have to invest in our technology, and that means we are investing also in our people. So this is also leadership with having a focus on the development and how to look into the future and not deal with the past. This is maybe in short, but I am happy to tell some more heavy experiences how it's to deal um, being a politician or in a small country. I think it's pretty much the same in a big. But politics today, to some extent, let me conclude, is also discredited in a way that 
we have difficulties if we don't work hand in hand with business, with civil society, with academia, with young people, then if we don't have this broader consensus to really listen to each other, we never will manage only as politicians to find proper solution to the challenges we have. Thank you so much, Tania. That's not only very eminently reasonable points, but uh, exactly five minutes. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Without looking at her watch. Valerie uh, Pandor, you, you've heard uh, Tania, and I, I suspect you don't disagree at all, but there must be additional thoughts from your perspective on this broader theme. The floor is yours, Valerie. Thanks very much, uh, Sashi, and uh, Tania, I think I set it up very, very well. Uh, my own uh, country's perspective would be that uh, I think we've been failed by the most powerful countries uh, as a world community because they have not played uh, the role that we would expect them to play, which would be to use their power to address the inadequacies and the vulnerabilities of the most poor and marginalized. Rather, they have exercised their muscle to uh, promote their national interests and their desire to continue to be the most powerful of the particular countries in the world. Um, so there is that, and I would want that the world community needs to alert the powerful to our expectations of them and to remind them that when they uh, sneeze, we all catch a cold as the smaller, weaker economies. So um, we have been failed, both by uh, uh, the large economies, but also institutions which should serve global interests, such as the United Nations, have constantly been severely undermined through denial of funding, denial of access, and so on. So I think what the world needs is a rethink of how do we actually get together as a global community because really um, if you look at the last 75 years the United Nations has really been quite incredible in avoiding uh, war uh, and atrocity but uh, it has not been served well by all its members uh, and it is really tragic that it is a member of the Security Council that is currently involved in a very worrying conflict. I believe that the conflict uh, arises primarily because the United Nations and the world community have not been equitable in how they view humanity. So we talk a great deal now about our concerns with respect to Ukraine, but hardly any word is said about Palestinians who are being killed every day. Uh, whose uh, air, uh, houses of worship are being destroyed, where worshippers are handcuffed uh, on a regular basis, uh, women are beaten on the street. Uh, so, you know, we talk about women, women's equality, but we allow Palestinian women to be hit with a baton as they just walk uh, along the road. So, the fact that we don't regard all human beings as equal leads us to the dismal situation we have today because uh, people have realized that uh, human rights matter for some but don't matter for others, that we are globally vocal for some 
and we are not vocal for others. And so that inequity causes a very disrupted world. And I think the kind of leaders we need are leaders who see everyone as a human being equally deserving of justice and freedom. That is the kind of world that I think we should strive toward. Because once I know that I matter, I must surely acknowledge that you matter too. But if I have a sense that because I'm black, because I'm a woman, because I'm in Africa, I matter less, that I can be gunned down and the world doesn't comment, then of course our attitudes are very, very different. They're shaped by that context and experience. So I do think we need leaders who understand the world and not just their country. We need leaders who are global in perspective, global in attitude, global in action. If we could get that, we could work toward building a far better world. But as long as we are selective, as long as we have double standards in our approach to rights and freedoms, we're not going to get a world that is conjoined and working for the greater good. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Nadia. And you too have a built-in clock I see inside your... Uh inside your mind without even looking at a watch that was exactly five minutes as well. So Ali, you have a tough, two tough acts to follow. Yeah. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, th thank you, sir, uh, to have me also here. Uh, I thought two of our colleagues uh, beautifully articulated what exactly is happening on the world. This inequality is a huge issue for small countries like us. Most of the time we feel that we have been uh, uh, double standard and also been bullied into submission of some sort of uh, uh, some of these tools are being used to bully you uh, instead of actually trying to advance human rights. So actually, so as long as this feeling of uh, there is real justice for all and, and, and there are no hypocrisy, there are no double uh, um, standard, it is very difficult to convince the population in your country you have been treated equally. So this is uh, precisely what the, uh, the foreign minister, uh, the, the ministers also has been telling. But to do that, it's also important that we need to understand that until every until everyone is safe, no one is safe. I thought we learned that in, in hard way when it comes to <coughs> vaccine equity. You know? So therefore, it's true uh, for violence, it's true for um, inequality of whatever the, the, the resources available, and also when it comes to violence. So if a particular community is marginalized, a particular section has been marginalized, and decision is being made by... Uh, based on your power, not on rationality, then uh, naturally those people feel that we are not part of the whole thing. So it's important that everyone, uh, however the size, whatever the size of their existence or the, or the country, uh, need to be given a voice. They should be heard and their concerns need to be taken into consideration. So that's very, very important. In doing so, what happens is the tolerance is very, very important. What is lacking as far as we are concerned is... Uh, uh, they know of lack of tolerance within and outside the countries. Within the countries particularly, uh, it, it is always you must open an, uh, an area for dialogue. People must start talking. Uh, you can't say that either you are with me or you are not with me. So divergence of views are very welcome. That's a part of democracy. There is nothing wrong in that. But if you force them into submission and they say that this is my voice and your voice are not heard, Either you are with me or you are not with me, then you are not left with an option than rebelling against it. And we have seen 
the domestically in countries and we have seen in regionally and we have seen in the world. So therefore, I think it is important that we learn from the past and, uh, and also plan for the future. Of course, we shouldn't be prisoners of the past, which is happening in, the, in a big time. You know, every time when you come out with something new, they will say that this is what happened in the past. Yes, it happened. You know, all over the world it has happened. In different parts of the world it has happened. But you should move on from there. Learn from that. And, and formulate a strategy for the future. So it's important that these multilateral forums should not become bullying forums for small and, uh, members of the uh, state. It should be a really consensus-made, reasonable platform where people will have confidence. That's how you can uh, uh, get a lot of people into it. And once again, I must emphasize the fact that there is obvious double standard in all these forums. And the powerful countries take a different view based on the, their domestic compulsion. A small country like Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka's foreign policy in most of the capitals have been decided by a small portion of diaspora and their power in those electorates, unfortunately. And that is totally cut off on the ground realities in Sri Lanka. We have 22 million people in our country who want to move on. But there is about 500, 600,000 diaspora living in various parts of the world refusing to move on, few of them. So, but then sometimes the entire decision-making process is being uh, forced by those diaspora, not the domestic interest in Sri Lanka. So therefore, I'm just giving an example so it is important that the dialogue must uh, continue, the tolerance must continue, uh, and a sense of reasonability and justice must prevail all over the world, saying that decisions are ba made based on merit, not on self-interest of countries and the regions. Uh, I, I think that's the kind of leadership we want, a leadership who uh, look beyond their own party, and look at uh, and national integration in the national level, regional integration in the regional level, and global integration on the global level. When that happens, I think we will have a better world. Well, thank you, Ali. Well, those were three fascinating responses. And I'm going to, before we turn to the audience, I do think of your questions, I'm going to ask you one question, the same one to all three of you. You all come from democracies and active, thriving democracies. And... You've all talked in terms of the need for more inclusive leadership, for more global leadership, for more future-oriented leadership, for leadership that takes everyone and everything into account. But we all know that it's the nature of democracies that politicians and political leaders are first of all accountable to their electorate, to those who are voting for them. And that very often uh, that may not necessarily be in accordance with the somewhat idealistic recommendations the three of you have made. I'm going to turn to me bluntly and say what we saw at the beginning of the COVID pandemic was something very different from your prescriptions. We saw countries almost universally suddenly realizing that they needed to be more self-reliant, that they needed to protect themselves, they needed to initially corner uh, personal protective equipment for their own doctors. Then it became a question of getting more medicines for their own people, then vaccines for their own people. You mentioned this earlier, but the, the, the broader issue is uh, Europe, for example, for all the talk of European integration, when the first COVID cases happened in Italy, what did you all do? You sealed your borders with Italy instead of reaching out to help your fellow Europeans. So when we're looking at democracies, that responsiveness to their own electorate, which is a virtue in democracies, 
also militates against the kind of leadership that you've all been talking about, uh, which, which really is an issue in times of turbulence when you want people to be far-seeing and broader-minded. Let me ask each of you, how do you, within your democracies, anticipate overcoming that problem that would impede the very suggestions you've all made? Tanya. It's not a, an easy question, and it's good that it's not an easy one. Um, I was thinking, when you mentioned COVID through, in Europe we reacted in a very selfish way, egoistic way, with closing down the borders. Um, and it's something that is a shame to see, and I agree with you. But very quickly we turned in to understand that if other parts of Europe were being global, will suffer, as you said at the beginning, as long as everyone is here, no one is basically here. So we quickly organized ourselves, open up the borders, establish green lines, establish solidarity, which is the basic principle of democracy, each democracy. But it's true that we have always challenges. As politicians, just give you the example, in each of our countries, I imagine, when you have a turmoil, you have uh, people on the streets, you have um, high inflation, you have uh, um, growth uh, of jobless people or instabilities, political, economic instabilities. You first, of course, try to protect your own people. Um, this is, I think, a very logic reaction, but that doesn't mean that you don't ask for solidarity and bring back solidarity because you depend from it. For a small country, this is even more obvious. We cannot, but I would even say, not even a big country, no one in today's globalized world can survive on its own. We today, I think, are so interconnected than maybe never before. On many topics, be it climate change, be it poverty, insecurity, be it terrorists, security threats. Um, so all inequalities that we are facing we have to address together. And today, I mean, now I was thinking even on your question, how as politicians we tackle the crisis in democracy when we have also the challenge of social media. I used to be a journalist myself. And I can tell you, facing today, how social media, through Twitter, through, through Facebook, through all the accounts we have, shape also the opinion of our societies, how we are in a such challenging world to fight disinformation, fake news, to, you know, give people really what they need through the proper evaluation and communication, it's a new challenge also for us. And um, even though sometimes I believe it's so good opportunity to have uh, um, internet, social media, fast development, it's hindering us a lot to fast react and adapt to these realities. So that is why I will come back to what I said at the beginning. I strongly believe we need all spheres of our society to work together. We need civil society. We need to have people in the core of our politics. Because as much good politician as you can be, you cannot convince people to follow you if you're not capable or able to understand them why something is good for them. And for that, you need maybe today politicians with a lot of emotional intelligence that really absorb what citizens want from them. 
even in this difficult environment for social media, that everyone can say everything they want. And this is another challenge that at least my generation or us is facing, just in a minor context to add, because I think we have all these challenges. Thank you, Sandy. lady. Well, I come from a crazy country called South Africa. Uh, we where all come from crazy countries. We, well, in ours, we had uh, an oppression by a minority of a majority, and we decided that we would reconcile. Uh, and so we're trying to build a new united South Africa out of that path. So I think we are crazy, uh, and that's why we have the ambitions of justice and freedom that I've referred to. I don't think we're idealistic. I think we just have an ambition to create a new and different society. One of the things that we did as we crafted our perspective on foreign policy, we appropriated an African concept, uh, which is in an African language, it's a Zulu. The concept is Ubuntu. And essentially what it means is I am a person because I recognize that you are a person. I am because you are. This is the underlying foundation of our foreign policy. Ubuntu is a Swahili word, right? Ubuntu is an African word. It exists in many different languages, but Ubuntu, as I've said, it is Isisulu in our, our languages. Now, that means that wherever we are, we will try and search for peace, for a negotiated outcome. We will promote diplomacy and the interests of others. This is something that we have decided is the basis for our approach uh, to, to foreign policy. Now, I want to conclude by telling you um, of my first public uh, meeting with President Mandela, who became president. I lived in Cape Town. I come from Cape Town, the city um, that was distant from the island on which he was imprisoned. So uh, we were there to receive him. Uh, when he was released. When, uh, you know, we were all in the square waiting for him, we were expecting a revolutionary speech from Mandela, that he was coming to say, right, now I'm free. We're ready now to finish the war, as it were. This man comes to this balcony, and very tall, stands up, and he says, I am your humble servant. I thought, what? <laughs> this is our leader. He's supposed to, you know. And he says, tell me what you want me to do for you. It took me years to actually appreciate that. Thank goodness Mandela said that. At the time, I was so angry as a young person. He's a revolutionary. He's supposed to be a radical. He should be giving us the line of march. And he says, I'm your humble servant. Tell me what you want me to do. And actually it's revolutionary when I think about it now that you know, I'm old. Uh, but at the time, I just didn't appreciate that he understood that what you have to do in circumstances of great difficulty, you use your convening power to draw people together, not to draw 
So for me, uh, it was an essence of a lesson about how you can use your charisma in a very unexpected fashion and actually help to mold the nation. So Fabulous. Thank you. I, I must say, I, my, one of my great memories is, is, is talking to President Mandela. I had, I had uh, the great privilege of a, of a lunch with him once uh, alone, with the two of us, uh, a couple of years after he'd given up the presidency. And it, it, one was in the presence of greatness. And so I just hope that others will be worthy of, uh, will be able to emulate the same standards of, of, of vision and humanity that he embodied. Ali. I, yeah, we all admire and all uh, been inspired by Mandela. You know, what a great leader. And uh, South Africans are singularly uh, blessed to have that kind of leadership. And it comes once in a lifetime, uh, probably. And I, uh, so just to take it from there, your own leader, uh, the, your own founder, uh, Mahatma Gandhi says in a similar situation, the highest form of freedom carries with it the greatest measure of discipline and humility. Unbridled license is a sign of vulgarity, injurious alike to self and one's neighbors. So if you look at that, these great leaders in the past have understood there is a huge responsibility not only for you or your party or your cadre. Beyond that, the people of your country, people of the continent, people of the world. So that's the kind of leadership I think the world is requiring. But we must also be realistic to the young, particularly when we... Uh, interact with the young leaders who will one day become decision makers on your own. Uh, you shouldn't be too much frustrated that nothing is happening. We not only can control but you control the bill. So you control within your organization, with your family, within your uh, area of architecture. Then once it comes to some level, when decision makers are there, then you will start making decisions. But I hope uh, these kind of characters like uh, Mandela and Gandhi's from nowhere at least right now to give a new hope, new leadership. Unfortunately, polarization has become unimaginable. Polarized in every sense, within the country and outside the country. If you look at our own country, unfortunately, we had a 26 years of a conflict. We have managed to defeat it. But 15 years down the line, we have not been able to achieve real, real reconciliation for various factors, both within and outside. We just met early in the morning, had a long discussion as to how we can bring about a credible uh, 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 truth-seeking mechanism so that uh, uh, we will not become an embroiled in the past and become prisoners of the past, but how to move on from there onwards. So, so those courageous decisions need to be taken. One example she was telling me that this is not going to be very popular. This is not going to, uh, but leaders need to persist. Persist with reason and ration, rational reason. So it's going to be very difficult, but those difficult decisions need to be made. Unfortunately, if you look back on Sri Lanka, where economically we are in a very difficult situation because populists. And we have not been able to bring that real fabric among our, we have few uh, 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 ethnicities there, the, the Buddhists, the, the, the Hindus, the, the, the Muslims, and the uh, Catholics. Uh, we have not been able to bring them all together in a sense, but I mean, people to people, we are very close to each other. But politicians have made use of it to divide and rule. It's very, very unfair. Uh, I think it's time that uh, we must all bring together and work as Sri Lankans. So similarly.
applies to any any country, any part of the world. So it's important that ultimately we must think all of us are human beings. And once again, I must reiterate the fact that unless everyone is safe, no one is safe. Sooner or later, it will come and catch you in a local context or a regional context or a, or a global context. Uh, we have seen that repeatedly again and again. So therefore, let's uh, learn from that and give that leadership within our power to change the world. Absolutely. Thank you all very much. Yes, uh, Owen and Mamsi next. I'll, I'll just, I think, take two or three questions at a time. Uh, if you want your question to be answered by a specific panelist, please say so. Otherwise, I'll throw it open to whoever wants to answer. But given that we have just under half an hour left, I'd rather not ask each of them to reply to every question. So ideally, target one person, or I might do so, or they might just volunteer to tackle a question. Oh. Thank you, Shashi. Owen Maxini is my name. I'm Irish, and I'm a young fellow, and I work at the UN in New York. My question is to Minister Panzer or Minister Sabri. The imperfections of the Security Council have been mentioned many times at this conference. So from South Africa, from Sri Lanka, What's your advice for a country like Slovenia, who's a candidate for election later this year? How would you wish for Slovenia to show solidarity on the issues that matter to you? And to see you sharing talks here today, I have to say, seems to me like a very good start. Thank well, that's you. a great question. Maybe I should let you answer that before we go to the next one. Yeah, Naledi and, and, and Ali. What can you demand of Tanya when she gets on the security council? Well, we would ask that, uh, oh, the mic, the mic. We would ask that she does take a close look at the Palestinian file. Uh, we believe it's extremely important. There are existing resolutions. They're not being uh, followed up. Uh, we also know in the Security Council, the agenda on Africa has a very long list, and we would want that that be looked at. So I hope Africa and the conflict uh, that are raging on the continent would receive uh, Slovenia's attention. And uh, we also think we need to discuss reform of the Security Council. Mm. And we would uh, believe that Slovenia could begin to lead in this uh, real discussion. It's been talked about for decades, mm. uh, but we don't have concrete uh, deliberations on what do we actually, uh, um, what do we mean by reform? Uh, what form, what should the composition be? A lot of people seem to be aiming for more permanent members, more veto power. That has not worked. How do we democratize? How do we ensure full attention to all the issues that are troubling the world? And what should we do to create uh, a security architecture that would help us to promote peace? So I think uh, for Slovenia, and I hope you're successful, I haven't seen your name on my desk yet, uh, uh, but uh, I hope you are voted in. Um, but I think that what the Security Council members coming up need to address are the very complex issues of the uh, content and form of the mechanisms of the United Nations and how we can put them uh, to use in a far better way than has been possible uh, in the past year. Thank you, Nadeji. Yeah, I, I think more or less the same thing, in, in, if I put it in different wording. A decision-making should seem to be, to most of us in the, in the outside world, seem to be rational, reasonable, plausible, and understandable. We don't understand. It is so much a polarization. And there cannot be double standard. One of the issues in, in contact is the Palestinian, the way 
it has been dragging for such a long period of time. How great powers just use it. You know, they don't even, if the simplest things can happen in my country, there will be tweets, there will be statements, there will be foreign committee statements in those countries, but Palestinians have been massacred on a daily basis. No one even talks about it, you know, and it is beyond even discussion. So the, how are you going to convince 23% uh, of the world's population are Muslims and about entire global south is, uh, is standing for Palestinians? So this reasonableness should come. You know, you cannot, and I also feel the people who have been oppressed at particular point in time, just like the South Africans are doing, has a more responsibility to see that you don't oppress the others. And you, it, when your turn comes in, you look after a very reasonable world and fight for it, rather than taking the turn and oppress the others on that. So that kind of leadership needs to come in the Security Council, and, and more, more for Sri Lanka. Is this country-specific bullying tactics need not to be used. That's right. I see Tanya taking notes. Mansi, you have the question. And I also uh, wish her well uh, and her country on the uh, candidacy. Well, we each have a vote, so <laughs> I'm sure she'll be asking you for it. So, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, my question actually ties in very nicely with your answer just now, Minister Sartre. I'm Mansi, uh, and, and the editor-in-chief at Penguin Randomers here in India, and I'm a resident young fellow this year. And I broadly also think that like our current state of polarization has become something of a vicious cycle. I feel like the public is polarized because of certain actions, polarizing actions by political actors and institutions, including, of course, the media. The public then responds by being polarized, and then it becomes the only, the only political action that can possibly happen from institutions and political actors, again, is polarization, which further polarizes the public. And you see what I mean. At some point, it's got to stop. At some point, someone's got to break the cycle and disengage completely. When is that going to happen, or who do you think can bear that brunt? Okay, well, Ali thinks of the answer to that. Now, Tara, you take the mic over, there's a hand. You asked the floor, didn't you, yet? And then, Vivian, we'll come to you next. Before you, we've got the question right here. Thank you all so much. Your remarks were, were great. Um, I'm Alexandra Seymour. I'm from the U.S. and I work for a think tank called the Center for a New American Security. Um, this question is for, I guess I'll direct it at the Deputy Prime Minister, but I would be open to hearing from all of you. Um, and I only direct it towards you because you brought up uh, artificial intelligence and technology, which is the area that I focus on. Um, but I am also bouncing off some of the, the earlier questions about the role of uh, bigger countries as well. Um, so technology is interesting just because it has the opportunity to be an equalizer uh, in the sense that um, uh, it brings new skills, it creates new jobs, it creates a lot of new opportunities. But it also requires us to be very proactive about that uh, in the way that we uh, approach the policies that we make uh, and making sure that we can harness the benefits of technology um, and, and the way that we're integrating it into society. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you uh, to make sure that we are able to harness it. Uh, what you see as some of the priority investments for technology beyond artificial intelligence, what you mentioned, um, and what you see as kind of the, the role for bigger powers. Uh, what, is, what are the most important things that they can do? Is it investment? Is it norm setting? Is it skills to make sure that as a globe we're all integrating these technologies as we're investing in them? Okay, Alexandra, pass the mic to Vivian. Sorry, we just... I'm hoping your question can be answered by that lady, because then each of them has one to answer. Yes, uh, one person is going to. Sure. Um, thank
Thank you. My name is Vivian Omariba from uh, Kenya. My question goes to Tanja Fajon from South Africa. Now, I'll start by giving us uh, a small scenario. Uh, two months ago, we lost an LGBTQIA activist back in Kenya. And uh, this was an issue uh, from a certain country from the West. I, uh, for the sake of this platform, I won't mention which one. So they offered to carry out the investigations, which was actually a shock for us because we have been having other issues in uh, Kenya. Uh, just to mention a few, the worst drought ever, uh, which is happening at the moment in Kenya, was uh, in the north due to cattle rustling. Then uh, we've been having acute malnutrition among women and uh, children. So. Um, my question exactly is that uh, we feel, as youth in Kenya especially, that sometimes the worst come in when they want to push forward the agenda, just as it was rightly said by Ms. Tanja. So my question then is, um, how well can Africa be self-resilient uh, when it comes to peace building? Thank you. Thanks, Vivian. Okay, so we have three questions. One for uh, Ali, the first one from Mansi. One for... Tanya from Alexandra and one from Naledi from Vivian. Yeah, now thank you very much for that question. I think there is no ready-made single answer that it has to be a combination of different efforts and different parts. Civil society has to play an important role, so rather than just staying away with it, and you have to continue to fight for the rights and the right thing to be done. And that's how changes have happened. You know, you may not see immediate instant results, but over a period of time, no, things which are, seems to be very, uh, impossible become possible over a period of time. So therefore that number one. Number two is of course institutional reforms need to be taken in. Judicial activism is one way of doing it. And then laws can come and uh, protect the vulnerable and prevent uh, polarization and going overboard uh, by hate speech laws and some of the countries have done. So we can learn, uh, uh, learn a lot but uh, uh, more to do is with the, uh, uh, with the leaders, you know, the politicians, political leaders need to know where to draw the line. You know, so the moment, uh, uh, if you go beyond that, it will come and bite you somewhere down the line. So we need to understand that. So the political leaders must act with restraint, with responsibility and tolerance. Civil society continue to be agitating for right things to be done. Educated people come and shape the spaces. Media has a huge responsibility to what to propagate and what not to propagate. Laws must come and regulate it. Hate speeches need to be need to end at some point in time. Otherwise, we are getting into a dangerous, dangerous uh, space. So, therefore, it is a combination of those things. And I have a role to play. You have a role to play. Rather than saying that it is impossible and only the leaders have to uh, do that, it will not happen. So, therefore, let us play our role within our capacity. And one day, people will listen, and they have to listen. And uh, that is the day we are all waiting for. Thanks, Ali. Tanya? Yes, thank you very much. Just allow me briefly to reflect that since Slovenia was mentioned on the, our candidacy for a non-permanent seat in UN Security Council goes for the period 2024-2025. And uh, I will say first that I put myself in a role of being a humble politician to listen very carefully what I'm trying to do since uh, many months now in office to understand what are expectations from a country sitting once in the UN Security country and, uh, Council and you address very important issues from Palestine, agenda on Africa, agenda on reform Security Council. I think all these and arrest assured that maybe even 
because we are a small country, we have a good understanding of listening and maybe even better of being an honest broker to bring different interests together. What I really try to do in my role is to go around to collect what is on the table, how to address best, and I think we have so many challenges currently on the table that we really have to understand what is going on. And the Security Council will need definitely to reform, to be able to again efficiently conduct its role. So I will do my best, and I had to say that. Um, on this particular question you posed um, to, to me on artificial intelligence, I will just give one concrete example. This time when I am here in a Resina Dialogue, I have with me uh, a gentleman who presents our Institute of Research Science um, it's a research institute for artificial intelligence, works under UNESCO auspices, it's based in Slovenia. Um, it um, connects a lot of institutes around the world. I think over 160 institutions are connecting in putting artificial intelligence together. And yesterday I spoke, I had a very interesting meeting with a foreign minister from Bhutan. I'm sorry if someone is here, but it was a really good meeting. And we were together speaking on artificial intelligence that can collect a lot of data in a very rapid time to use or for sustainable development goals or for different topics. But we discussed with the minister, they have 16, 17 languages that are, you know, identity, culture. And through artificial intelligence, we discussed, you can very quickly identify how to help to protect one of these little languages and together with identity and culture. Just last week, one of the 16, 17 languages, the last person died. So you know, with the artificial intelligence collecting data fast, on many spheres of our society, you can find solutions if you're capable to then implement them into politics. That is why I think we can really focus a lot and have benefits from artificial intelligence and the development and innovation and bringing new technologies in. And of course, learn from each other and exchange best practices. So that is what I can do as a politician to really bring science um, diplomacy, research diplomacy, also in our diplomatic activities, which we are trying to do. It also connects not only research science, but also business and of course, then society. And to just final remark um, back on what is the role of our politicians or international leadership? Um, I have two key words that I try to follow. This is uh, respect and trust, which I think is at the core of every one of us. If we respect each other and build trust, we can really progress in what we all try to do. So this is my, I would say, mantra when I work as a politician. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tanya. And Ali, you have the last word on this round. I'm sorry. And Nale, Nale, you have the last word. Now, um, if you permit, I just want to go back to an earlier question you posed on the COVID response. Yes. I slightly disagree because I think at the beginning, the world did work together. And it was when vaccines became available that the selfishness 
I can give you examples to the contrary. I want to just say that India was incredible because it made vaccines available. Glad to hear that. That was also six, seven, nine months after the after everything started. Well. India at the beginning when immediately the vaccines were available, we got access and we were able to share with other African countries. But uh, the UK, which purchased most of the initial Pfizer product, which was in numbers well beyond their population numbers, they just caused this real terrible nationalism uh, that we experienced uh, as we sought greater access to vaccines. So that initial unity of the world fell apart. And uh, I, I just wanted to say at the beginning we did well when it was uh, masks and protective uh, uh, gear and so on. But once we had a vaccine, it was shocking uh, the way the world uh, really looked to itself. And the WHO fund uh, for, for vaccines was very poorly. So on, it was quite yeah. terrible. On technology, uh, I think, uh, yes, certainly, important equalizer if used properly and if available. Um, we had to close down uh, schooling over many, many months uh, in many countries during the COVID period. And uh, we had suddenly to make increased use of information communication technologies. So you had to search for tablets. Uh, and ensure that you got those to teachers and to schools. We had an amazing collaboration uh, between civil society uh, organizations and governments in ensuring wider access to ICT resources. But I do think as we uh, get into artificial intelligence, and particularly its role in bioengineering, we've really got to look at the regulatory framework and ensure that there aren't abuses. So just as uh, with uh, scientific experiments, there are ethics rules, uh, I think uh, with some of the new developments in technology, we need to look at what framework, what rules will govern uh, their use, especially for more vulnerable uh, uh, persons who may become, uh, you know, uh, guinea pigs uh, uh, for various uh, uh, tests of initial uh, uh, technologies. I also think in the domain of cyber security, I don't think it's a good idea for every country to have separate legislation. I think we should talk about a cyber security framework of protections in the context of the United Nations. I think a global framework is going to be extremely important. Otherwise, we'll always be in a subject to the most powerful abusing us through use of cyber technology. So I do think we need uh, urgently to finalize a universal cyber security uh, framework, just as I think we need to just look at pandemics as well and have them uh, constrained under the rubric of a global multilateral uh, institution. Uh, finally, on uh, uh, the question from the uh, young person from Kenya, um, I think Africa must uh, refine its instruments uh, of uh, peace and security on the continent. Uh, we have improved vastly in the last uh, 20 years of existence of the African Union. Uh, but what we should also do is develop uh, human rights frameworks 
where the rights of all persons are respected. Um, I don't understand why, because of so, uh, sexual orientation, we wish to oppress particular categories in our society. I think everybody should enjoy freedom. That's what our constitution uh, provides. But nobody should pretend to be better than another. And so I do uh, find this, uh, you know, predilection toward investigating the southern countries a real problem. Um, I saw recently in the Human Rights Council uh, that uh, there was reference to South Africa as being xenophobic toward other Africans. It's not the entire nation of South Africa. We've had incidents that are really disgraceful and regrettable, but it's not the entire South Africa. But there's this thing where universal uh, organizations just jump in uh, when it's Africa. But elsewhere, uh, you know, you can imagine if in South Africa a white female journalist had been shot by the police. You can imagine the attention that would get. A journalist of Al Jazeera is killed in Palestine. It's not being investigated, not talked about very much. Everybody made huge comments at the beginning when she was killed. And now it's all disappearing in the ether. We shouldn't treat people and uh, communities in that way. So I believe develop our frameworks, have respect for human rights. Everybody should enjoy those rights. It shouldn't be, you know, because you have a particular sexual orientation, you should be uh, prohibited in some way or treated unequally. We really just have time for one more question he asked first. But those of you who want to say something, uh, the ministers have kindly agreed to stay on for lunch here, so there will be an opportunity for informal word. Yes, uh, that will be the last question. Thank you. Leo Vigor from Canada Foundation in Berlin. Um, one question to Minister Pandora as well. I mean, uh, South Africa is hosting the BRICS summit uh, later this year in the uh, Australian winter in uh, August. Um, so my question uh, to that is, what are your priorities for the BRICS summit um, and also in terms of potential new member states? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Saudi Arabia, for example, joining BRICS. Uh, what is your position on that? And uh, you were mentioning um, that kind of um, a lack of responsible leadership on the uh, global stage um, at the moment. Does that extend to uh, members of the BRICS as well? or just two countries outside of that, just trying to read between the lines. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, uh, what I'm going to do is ask the lady to respond to that specific question. And then, uh, Ali and Tanya, whether you have any closing thoughts of your own, uh, either responding to anything that any, anybody else has said, or just your own final, final word on this broad issue of leadership at a time of polarization. And then, I, I know, I, I know you, you wanted the floor shy, but... Uh, we, we, no, I, 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 you, you have a point, but you will have an opportunity to talk to the minister when she's staying on for lunch for a few minutes after we finish. Let's not tie up the whole group. All right, the floor is yours, my lady, on, on this question that you just got, and then we'll turn to Ali and finally to Tanya. I hope you're not saying I'm right-wing. I couldn't quite get it. No. All right, because I thought, oh, <laughs> that's, that's a scary accusation. Um, on BRICS, uh, our theme is BRICS and Africa, uh, a collaboration for sustainable development and inclusive economic growth. So that is the rubric under which the activities uh, of BRICS this year, which involve over 200 working groups, 
they'll be undertaken under that theme. Uh, our ambitions are to advance uh, the work that we've already begun in BRICS. Uh, you know that we have a new development bank uh, that has been uh, working uh, very hard at supporting our infrastructure ambitions. As the BRICS uh, member countries, we are the ones who've invested in that bank and it has done very well in its first five years uh, of experience. We have collaboration in the academic sector, think tanks, women and uh, many other uh, sectors that work uh, together. In terms of expansion, uh, we're still discussing this matter. There's no decision on it as yet. Some BRICS members are supportive, others are not. So it's something that we have to continue uh, uh, to discuss and debate. And indeed, yes, we have failures of leadership in the South as much as we do uh, in, in the West. Uh, the West, however, is very powerful and can set an important tone because uh, it does hold a large bulk of the world's money. Uh, the dollar is influential throughout the world. All of us utilize it as the key uh, international currency. So I do think uh, when you are powerful, you should be alert to the kind of tone that you can set and should use your power in a very different way uh, from the manner in which some of our leaders are using their power. But that does not mean uh, all leaders uh, that are not in the West are good leaders. Uh, there are faults on all sides, and I think it's important to say that. Uh, some of the division that one of the colleagues referred to here, of ethnicity or religious intolerance, are promoted by some of our leaders as a very useful political tool by them uh, because they cause... Uh, you know, anger in communities and use this as a means of mobilizing communities to support their particular political orientation. So there are leaders that are really at fault and are evil, uh, and uh, I think uh, we should say that. Uh, I don't think all uh, politicians are good necessarily. Actually, that's where you see a lot of the harm uh, being caused is through uh, politics, but there are some uh, that do do a very good job and that try and uphold integrity and high values. Thank you, Ali. Your closing thoughts. Uh, uh, thank you very much, I think, for that uh, very good discourse, uh, particularly from my colleagues here and from you and from also the audience. But I think uh, one of the most important things is that uh, we must take out is a difficult thing. That there is no good chosen people. All are equal. You must treat everybody. The moment you think that you are superior because of your color, you are, uh, or you have been chosen by whatever the Bible or Quran or anything, then it's, it's difficult for you to understand that everybody is equal. You know, you must get out of that mentality. We are all equal. And we are all human beings. We need to be treat everybody equally. That's number one. Number two is when leadership, <coughs> when going back, when leadership is uh, about, there are two ways of doing it. My own experience in my country. Some of the leaders, all of us are ambitious. We need to achieve certain things. But two ways of doing it. One is you take the country on a path which suits your agenda or you align yourself to the country's agenda. That is, you have a vision for the country, you have a vision for the world, and that vision is good, and you align yourself. So other than if you try to, your ambitions take you to somewhere, you want to be the leader of the country, and you take the country down the polarization way, that's where the countries break. 
that's where the, this polarization gets even more powerful. So it's important that we, young leaders, talking to you, who are going to be probably uh, making decisions days to come, go back to what Mahatma Gandhi says and learn from what Mandela did. There's a lot for us to do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mahatma Gandhi famously said, my life is my message. And I think one could argue that Mandela's life also was his message. So uh, that's a hard uh, yardstick to live by for everyone, but it's a noble aspiration. Tanya, you have the last word on this one. Thank you very much. I will change on a bit different note and will open something that hasn't been mentioned yet. Since we were talking about the human rights and we touched upon color, religion, sexual orientation, but I strongly believe also in a leadership that promotes equal opportunities. And I will speak about women and girls. Just recently we were together 10 female foreign ministers, I think it was somewhere in Europe, and we addressed the topic of uh, what is happening with women and girls in Afghanistan and Iran. And in fact, to, to see that women there are not allowed to go to schools, to universities, are not allowed to walk freely in the parks, work in humanitarian organizations, this is something that is unacceptable. And just to tell you, we have half of population globalized, globally that we have to empower. Global gender gap is so huge that according to some statistics, we need 130 years before we'll manage to empower women and girls to be equal partners in our societies. And I strongly believe we have to give women and girls the tools to be courageous, to have opportunities to contribute to our societies, be it in economy, be it in political life, be it in research, science, equal opportunities. And I think this is also a strong leadership. Myself, I'm the first female foreign minister ever in my country. And for you, young generation, be courageous. Um, sometimes it's difficult to operate in a, in a political environment where sometimes I feel the rules have been created by men, but we women have to be strong because our societies will be strong when equally we are represented women and men. So maybe this is as a concluding remark. Um, everything has been, or a lot has been said, but also I would like to empower and encourage young women leaders and politicians. Well, that's a rousing note from the finish. There you all join in and continuing that applause for all three of them. Uh, for this wonderful discussion panel. Right. Thank you so much, Tanya Fayon, Navadi Pandor, and Ali Sabri. And may we invite the three of you to lunch at the buffet. Yeah. And I'm sure the young people will first allow the foreign ministers, some of whom have yeah. to rush off after lunch, to get their plates first. And then yeah. may, may I invite Nointara yeah. to please present the mementos to our panel? Yes, please. come along, Nointara. <laughs>